Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio with Jacob and Lalita. Lalita. And we'll take you through to 8.30. In a, and uh, the program today is uh, filled with news, of course, from Green Left Weekly. And we also have a couple of interviews, one from an uh, environmental activist in Sri Lanka and the other one is from the Asylum um, Resource Centre. Asylum Seeker Resources Centre, yeah. And we want to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to the elders of past and present. And Jacob, um, we have hot news this morning. Yeah. It's um, what happened at the Bendigo um, housing occupation, a bit of a disaster yeah. happened there. Well, you want to tell, tell people about that? What's um, happened is um, from those who... Though many listeners here would probably already know about the occupation, but for the past several months, um, activists um, have been occupying um, or empty houses on the street of on Bendigo Street in Collingwood. Um, the political kind of reason for this was um, to make a particular demand that these houses, which have remained vacant for so long, be turned into public housing. Um, since then, they have kind of, it has developed in, in, into a t- uh, community um, that has actually been housing many homeless people um, across the different houses. They've also occupied houses in Parkville. Um, and it has been happening pretty consistently for quite a um, while. Um, you know, nothing has actually been um, happening, but until the past several days, the police have actually started to step in and started evicting people from the houses. Um, Yesterday, what had happened was um, one of the houses, um, people were evicted out of one of the houses. Um, there was a large police presence. Um, police were pretty much sent. Like those, um, I actually wasn't there myself, but I saw the pictures, the media, the videos. There was like a large police presence all there to kind of like just evict one person out. Um, they haven't evicted everyone out of the houses yet. Um, there's some of the houses still being occupied. Um, however, activists have sent a text out that they um, did say yesterday um, that the police have told media that they would be evicting everyone immediately. Um, that was yesterday. Um, at this point, nothing has actually happened. Um, so you have to, um, I would encourage listeners to stay tuned um, and to get down to Bendigo Street when you can, preceding any kind of um, impending eviction. What's okay, just, you done? Oh, no, no. Um, last thing I kind of wanted to mention um, was kind of like the hack job that um, Herald Sun, in fact, it's actually on the front cover um, of yesterday's Herald Sun, and it has this, um, the cover headline is Good Riddance um, to these squatters being evicted out of their um, their houses. It basically completely disregards 
the political um, protest um, that was happening on Bendigo Street. Um, it got tries to despair um, to. Um, d- you know, basically say that, oh, yes, they're living, they're living rent free. Um, they're a bunch of terrible people and it's so terrible. And the, the police are good on the police for evicting the, these rabble out, which is, um, just ridiculous. And then they have to quote, um, there's this quote from one of the Salvation Army who basically says that these people who have been occupying housing, these squatters who have been occupying these houses were keeping homeless people from getting housing, which is, the, a completely ridiculous statement when you consider that... If that is true. Well, I think that the, the reality is that these squatters... No, no, no um, I'm doing, if, if that quote is actually from the Salvation Army, we don't know. You know you're talking about the Hell Sun. Oh, yeah. Okay, exactly. Yeah, oh, yes, that's what you're saying. Yeah, yes, I, completely. Um, though I would, um, this is actually kind of in line with um, some of what the um, Salvation Army says sometimes. Um, but yeah, they said this particular Salvation Army representative said that um, they were keeping these people were keeping homeless. Yeah, but that's people. not necessarily true. But anyway. Yeah, um, but I think the ridiculousness of the statement is that these squatters who are occupied houses, a lot of them were probably homeless themselves. So it's basically blaming victim it, it blaming. Doesn't, the, it, the, the statement doesn't make any sense for the Salvation Army to make a, make such a statement because those houses were unoccupied and they were not in the Salvation Army's property basket to be distributed to anyone who's homeless. That is being kept by whoever owns the place. I think Carol Connex owns it. Um, and um, they're just keeping it. They don't want anyone to be there. That's all. It's just... Yeah. Oh, the, the compli- actually, this is the one complicated um, issue that's been sort of the subject of the protest. Actually, some of those houses were actually given to, um, I think, the Salvation Army and to Collingwood Social housing, something like that. Oh, I see. So basically, yeah. um, that's that's the that's the main core complicated part of the issue. And basically, one of the big things about this campaign was this emphasis um, on that we need public housing, not social housing, because these um, these properties were sold um, off after the East West Link. Um, project was scrapped um, to social housing providers and of course these houses weren't being used and in fact there was a situation um, several months ago when it was found that there was actually an employee of one of these organisations actually living in um, the Bengo Street going, which was kind of seen as quite scandalous at the time. But the, 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 the crucial thing to, to tell um, to let listeners know is that we know that number 13 for example has been boarded up by the police which means that Unless you break through the boards, you can't get to the, get to the place. But what's even worse is that um, I work at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, and this is exclusive news. Um, we were called in for a staff meeting, and we were wondering what that was. And we were told that the Department of Health and Human Services barged into our service. We are a health provider, and they demanded that we help them remove children I think there's an Aboriginal family living there, and they specifically targeted the Aboriginal family, and they wanted our organisation to go out and take, remove those children from their home. And there was absolute shock horror in the organisation. Um, we were told at the meeting that there is absolutely no way we will participate in such a horrendous um, 
you know, task of, of removing children from their home or their family. Um, and, and everybody was totally stressed out, very upset, very, very stressed about all day, actually. And um, strict instructions have been given to everybody that we are a service provider for ill people. And we also are about keeping families safe. We are not about removing children um, from their families for DHS's convenience, which is colluding with the state government and the police to evict people out of Bendigo House. They were, not, they were dragged out. Mm. They literally dragged, physically dragged out. Appalling behavior by the state. This is turning into a complete police state. And I'd encourage every single person who's got a bit of time to guard, then give support to these people who are there who have bravely occupied the place, and they had nowhere else to go. If they had given them alternative housing, they would have gone. And there's a big debate about social housing and public housing. We'll talk about it another time because it's a very involved debate. That's why I was trying to sort of, you know, um, move it on. But anyway, that's, that's that. And hats off to the people who are standing strong in Bendigo Street and 3CS right behind you, regardless of which, um, what criticism the Herald Sun has made, which is usually ludicrous, but this time yeah. it's absolutely an abhorrent, mm. I'd say, the way they reported the whole thing. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Um, we have... Bit of, you want to talk about an, another bit of news? Um, Moving I, on to Green Left Weekly News, you got excited about Brisbane. Yep. Um, well, I've got. Um, there's been a lot of articles in online put up for the Green Left Weekly um, on what's happening. Though this is going to be a bit, almost like a big, too much of a big news story. But I'll cover bits of it. Yeah, if just I can. make it brief because we're going to have what, five minutes. Um, for many um, probably li- uh, listeners probably saw on their um, social media that there's currently a big. Um, struggle going on at, in the United States over a pipeline being built in North Dakota. Um, this which is in Standing Rock Indian Reserve, Reservation. Um, Native Americans have um, joined in, have been leading this protest against this pipeline being built, essentially because this pipeline would um, lead to basically their sacred land being taken away from them, um, it would lead to water pollution, um, and so on. Um, but what, what has been um, fascinating has been the solidarity that has been shown from the broader community. In fact, more than one million people checked in on, at Standing Rock on Facebook. That's probably what a lot of people saw. They saw a lot of people, their friends suddenly in Dakota. Um, the reason that's why... What, that's what we need in Bending Australia. <laughs> um, the reason why a lot of... Um, the, reason, the, the mass checking was in response to a vial post um, calling for help to protect activists in North Dakota. Um, protests against the Dakota Access Oil Pipeline from police surveillance through the Facebook feature. Although, as someone who knows actually quite a bit about surveillance, um, I don't think it necessarily would have done much um, because the police and have access to far more sophisticated um, surveillance technologies than just simply searching through Facebook. Um, and um, But I think the, um, it was still an important thing because it actually... Um, had this effect of, you know, broadening out um, um, awareness for the issue, and it and it sort of able to, you know, allow people to sort of make a sort of small step of solidarity. Um, of course, there's other um, ways um, you can support um, Standing Rock. In fact, they're asking um, for donations for their legal fund, and in fact, there was actually an anonymous donation, I think, of in the millions of $2.3 million or $3 million from anonymous donors to help with the legal fund because 
Um, what has happened has there's just like Bendigo Street, um, there's been huge police repression, um, or well, not actually police repression, it's military repression That's of right. the protest, yeah. a step above police um, repression, and um, activists have been arrested and fined, um, and it's it's so they, um it's just it's just getting really and intense ugly, and very ugly. Um, and um, we um, stay tuned, I guess, for further updates on where that develops because I think this is going to be a real ongoing struggle that um, for the next the weeks to come. Yeah, it's it's same theme, isn't it? You know, you have got uh, Bendigo House being raided by the police, and you've got the traditional people of um, the Dakota area being arrested. 141 people were arrested. And it's just absolutely appalling. And, and there is um, an observation that the raid of the cannonball site um, is, you know, after months of indigenous-led resistance, uh, they say it's, it violates Native Americans' treaty rights and threatens their access to safe water as well. So it is a very important issue. And given the climate change issues that are happening, I think we need to keep ourselves on the uh, keep our ears to the ground and see what else is happening there. Um, now you're going to have some more news to read while I get hold of the. Oh. Okay, we are having trouble getting hold of the first um, interview, but in the meantime, I'll read two pieces of news that are uh, fresh off the press, I guess. One is that um, the rail, tra- uh, train, bus union and the TWU rally is uh, being held in honour of Manmeet, who is um, who was killed recently. And it's being held on the 9th of November, which is Wednesday, 11am to 12pm at the 8-hour day monument, Russell Street, Melbourne. Uh, now, Manmeet Alisha is a member of the RTBU from Queensland and he was tragically killed on the 28th of October. Nobody deserves to be in harm's way at work. He, so he was, he's one who was burnt, um, at the bus. So I think people are pretty aware it was all over the, um, TV news and everything. But there is a, um, more, you know, a ceremony type thing being held at this eight-hour day monument as Alder Street. So, if people who are interested in um, attending, it's Wednesday, 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. The other bit of news is um, that it's about CUB actually. Uh, again, a very, very, very uh, fresh news. Um, the ETU of Australia, the Victorian branch, um, sent it at 9 p.m. yesterday. Uh, apparently there's been a memo that's being leaked um, and it says that the chief architect of the CUB 55 uh, sackings, Gary Woodburn, has been given his marching orders. The following CUB internal memo has been leaked. Gary, after 20 weeks, you have cost a proud company millions of dollars of productivity, uh, irreparable brand damage and intense hardship for the um, families of the 55 loyal, highly skilled maintenance workers. And it ends with saying good luck with finding new employment. But it's also a warning that this doesn't mean that the 55 workers will be reinstated. So we need to continue our support for the um, 55 workers who have been sat. And um, 
offered uh, their job for about 65% less um, wages from what they had before. So although that is a positive step in the right direction, we have no guarantees. I guess one significant um, thing, there's going to be a refugee rally happening tomorrow, um, but there's been a number of recent um, developments um, that many have probably heard in terms of refugee rights and um, policy, especially by the government. Um, in Malcolm Turnbull announced on October the 30th um, that the Australian um, government um, um, is formally threatening to formally prevent any refugee who arrives of, or by boat from ever getting Australia visa. This would include short-term tourists and business visas, let alone a permanent protection envisioned by the Refugee Convention. Um, the legislation will apply to any refugee taken to a regional processing centre, notably the offshore hellholes of Manus and Nauru, since July 19, 2013. Um, the legislation has um, been seen by refugee advocates as a cynical attempt to sabotage action in the Papua New Guinea um, Supreme Court to enforce the closure of the Manus Island Detention Centre. Um, I guess the date is significant because it's um, also in the same date um, on which um, former Pro Labor Prime Minister Kevin Rudd announced that refugees arriving by boat will never be settled in Australia. This is one example of Labor's compliance and the ongoing shift drift to the right in the refugee policy in this country. However, it is um, Pauline Hanson's far right responsible um, for that could be considered responsible for the latest move. These two key Facts. These two facts highlight the key dynamics of this development. First, it is authoritarian, right-wing move approved and supported by the most prominent representatives of the right. Second, it is a policy direction that could not have achieved much success were it not for Labor's shameful priority over the past 15 years. Uh, of course, in, in response, and I would probably in some ways say it's kind of be considered kind of opportunist in a way, um, a number of Labor politicians have indicated that the latest um, move by the government extreme. In fact, op, um, Bill Shorten um, kind of slammed Malcolm Turnbull's decision, um, but he sort of did it without really saying anything at all. Um, he didn't. He condemned um, he, um, Malcolm Turnbull for the policy, but they said, "Oh yes, um, when I read the, he didn't even, but didn't particularly condemn the policy. More like he was condemning Malcolm Turnbull for announcing the policy at all." So that is. Um, well, that's, that's, I think maybe where they disagree is on how extreme it is, like the, the sort of semantic kind of particulars, um, which because you could argue that the Liberal Party have been much further to extreme than Labor, but they both support the same exact policy. Amnesty International has already stated it is um, one of the worst human rights abuses they've seen, um, and one of them, one of the officers was interviewed. Um, the ABC programs and I interviewed Amnesty International spokesperson he said the policies are seen as terribly mm. draconian mm. by Amnesty International yeah. I think I'd, I guess another thing is um, deputy just before you go on yeah. um, just apologies to the, to the listeners because we are unable to get hold of Pamela Kirby who was supposed to be available at 7.15 her phone's turned off so we can't get hold of her mm. Okay, so anything else you want to say about that? Oh, yes, I think there's um, just some important sort of things um, in this article. It's an article written by Alex Bain, which I've been taught reading, but I forgot to mention, attempts to rip um, from the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, but I guess another thing in terms of the ALP response is um, Deputy Leader Tanya Plebiscet, um 
have also sort of claimed to waiting to see the detail as if kind of detail is needed before deciding whether or not to support it. Um, it should, but of course, it, a lot of what McIntyre is saying is actually no different from what, as um, originally quoted, what Kevin Rudd had originally proposed back in 2013. Um, but again, this is they're still falling into this sort of argument. For example, Shorten also told Fairfax Media, of course, people who come by people smugglers should not be allowed to sell here. We'll never allow the people smugglers back in business. But Liberal and Labor politicians have used this the excuse of opposing people smugglers and saving lives at sea. However, these are merely, you know, it's merely just a justification for a racist policy designed to distract attention from the government's plans to attack living standards and social rights across the board. Um, of course, it should be also noted that the proposed legislation will affect anyone who arrives by boat, ignoring the fact that not everyone who arrives by boat paid money to a people smuggler. It also ignores that many people smugglers, even if they accept money, arrange transport for humanitarian reasons. Some general refugees are accused of being people smugglers simply because they're all crew members on a boat. Um, and in, in any case, regardless of their motives... Um, people smugglers save lives. Many of the people who facilitated transport for Jews fleeing Nazi Germany were paid. They would be labelled people smugglers by Turnbull and Shorten, but who would criminalise their clients today? I guess um, the only question, I guess, is, you know, moving forward for this is, you know, how many, how long will it take and how many lives will be broken before that day arise before, you know, where we shut down a mass in Nauru, you know, and this whole mandatory detention. And, and um, now, as I guess, you know, in light of what, you know, the coalition and the, and the Labor's whole compliance in this policy, um, we actually, in, there's probably no better time to get involved in refugee rights because there's going to be a refugee rally happening tomorrow at Saturday. Timely announcement. Yeah. <laughs> at 1pm at the State Library. Yes, please, everybody who's um, appalled by this new... Here I'm talking without the mic on again. Uh, sorry about that, listeners. Yeah, for for those people who are appalled by this new new proposal, please turn up to the rally one one o'clock at the State Library this Saturday. The bigger, the better. We need to send a strong message. And feet on the ground always means more than tweeting or Facebook um, postings. So really, really important. Now uh, let's go on to some good news. <laughs> For a change. <laughs> <laughs> this is terribly depressing this morning. Um, okay, the Canadian author and journalist and activist Naomi Klein has been selected as the recipient of the 2016 Sydney Peace Prize. For, as the Sydney Peace Prize jury put it, exposing the structural causes, in other words, capitalism, and responsibility for the climate crisis, for inspiring us to stand up locally, nationally, and internationally to promote a new agenda for sharing the planet that respects human rights and equality, and for reminding us of the power of authentic democracy to achieve transform transformative change and justice. So this is another article in Green Left Weekly, and, and, and this is fairly long article, so just to give people a, a taste of what it says is climate change um, is not only a threat to the planet as we know, uh, we also but also to any hope of achieving lasting peace. In her book 
this changes everything. Capitalism versus the climate. Klein skillfully articulates how today's economic system preserves devastating forms of structural violence. It's a really good book. I know it's a big, thick book, but it's actually worth reading for people who need um, any more details and uh, facts which are hidden from people generally about climate change, unlike some One Nation senators that we know of. So attitudes ingrained throughout history have caused certain communities to be disproportionately impacted by out-of-control carbon emissions and the destruction of extractive industries. Klein refers to these communities as sacrificial zones, or sacrificial lambs rather. These remote places are generally home to residents with a great deal of political power and who lack the resources to prepare for and withstand the impacts bestowed upon them by the developed world. So between 2008 and 2014 alone, more than 150 million people have been displaced as a result of climate change, moving within countries and across international borders. So she's horrified uh, by reactions to the current waves of people seeking asylum in Australia. Again, we go back to the same story we read before. And elsewhere, just imagine what this response would look like in the future when weather patterns become increasingly erratic and patches of land become less and less inhabitable. It's not difficult to imagine that the impacts of climate change will exacerbate existing tensions and injustices, such as the inequality and racism. Make no mistake about it, Klein says. It's not just about things getting hotter and wetter. It's also about things getting a lot meaner. So for people who want more on that article, go to the latest uh, Green Left Weekly. You can, you can buy it. Uh, there are stalls everywhere. There will be a stall on Saturday at the Refugee March. You can also get some of the articles online. Okay, so I'm going to go and try and get see if Pamela is available one more time, yep. and you can read the next piece of news. Yeah? Yep. Okay, um, so I guess um, Nick, in terms of so I'm just trying to get the next piece of news up. <laughs> Guess um, I'll, I'll go talk about another, um, you know, another fake article. Um, one of the co- actually cover articles of um, the Green Left Weekly, um, which is um, an a article written by um, Zebedee um, Parks. Um, it's it's about refugee rights again, but I think it's another sort of interesting angle. Um, basically, it's a what Zebedee has written here has been is a critique of um, of the Welcome to Australia events um, organised under the theme um, that happened uh, on October 22nd. Um, they're organised under the theme of Walking Together to Welcome Refugees. And he writes here that, you know, in Sydney, you know, your little hellion balloons, musical performances, bright red shirts and smiles gave it a carnival-like um, atmosphere. You know, for some, this could have been seen as their first refugee rights event. Um, you know, we, you know, groups like, you know, Mothers for Refugees, Grandmothers for Refugees, Doctors for Refugees, Refugees Action Coalition, um, Social Science, the Greens and people like us, you know, were all pla- um, present with plaque banners and placards opposing detention. Um, while, you know, the one of the things about the rally was the organisers had hoped to lead a silent walk with only some drumming, a chant of say it loud, say it clear, um, 
um, refugees who are welcome here will start in the heart of the work and spread to the front as more people join in. It was, I guess, another decent mobilisation of the growing refugee rights campaign that occurred only days after an important victory with an announcement that medical professionals are now exempt from the Border Force Act. Um, Zebedee writes here, you know, um, you know, despite, you know, there was this overall kind of mood from the crowd, you know, calling for an end to the tension system, yet the organisers of this um, this particular march, um, Welcome to Australia, used this event, you know, to give Labor a platform to excel its support for a vague concept of multiculturalism while simultaneously distracting from its policy of um, boat turnbacks and independent tension yeah, um, of asylum-seeking refugees. Um, and, of course, you know, um, one, this is the particular critique is that, you know, um, giving um, Labor a platform, you know, to, you know, to celebrate modern culture does nothing to, you know, to challenge their, their current policy on refugees. And Zebedee writes here that, you know, multicultural celebrations, you know, are worthwhile events, um, sure what, um, but they're not a substitute or alternative strategy for highlighting the need to end indefinite tension. They should not be used to give Labor a platform to appease sections of the community while they continue to support the detention system and, of course, broad mobilisations that clearly target both the coalition and Labor's rod and refugee policy are needed if we want to really welcome refugees to Australia. Yeah, the thing is, if you have mobilisations, you need to be able to put demand on the government and the opposition. In this particular case, that wasn't what happened. That's what they're talking about. And uh, following on from that birthday announcement that I just played, um, we still haven't reached our target for the fundraising this year for 3CR. So people who are listening and who do enjoy the program from 3CR, please keep in mind that we need funds to keep the station on air, an alternative means of getting some decent news compared to some of the rubbish you hear on some of the news media. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I just wanted to read... Um, something different. Angela Davis was in town recently. I don't know people, how many people knew about this, but uh, she's an old radical from the 70s. Um, she's a long-term activist, and she was 10 most wanted people on the FBI list in the 1970s, and she spent 18 months on trial after being placed on, on the list the forum that was held by Melbourne Uni was completely and utterly full. Were you there? Um, no, it wasn't, unfortunately. No. I was it at was work. <laughs> amazing. She spoke for an hour and she was so inspiring. Um, there was a standing room only in the end. They couldn't fit everybody in. So she has an extensive teaching career since she went through those radical days of the 70s and has lectured through the U.S. as well as in Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia, and South America. And she has conducted um, extensive research on um, numerous issues related to race, gender, and imprisonment and has authored 10 books. And a recent book of essays, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, and Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement. So she, her, in her analysis, the refugee movement, again we're going the same theme here, seems to be our morning's theme. The refugee movement is the civil rights movement of our time, which is a, a fantastic way of uh, looking at this. And especially in line with Naomi Klein, say, what, what Naomi Klein said, they seem to agree uh, um, at a certain wavelength. In most countries across the world, my world migration 
migration and refugee, let me start that again. In most countries across the world, migration and refugee issues have become, come to the fore as well as struggle for justice. The Mediterranean has become a graveyard for refugees, which was amazing, uh, you know, statement. Davis emphasized the importance of internationalism, pointing to the links that have been made between Black Lives Matter activists and activists in occupied Palestine. Women also have been the best organizers, she said. Their campaign to stop violence against women is important and shows that the links between intimate violence and the, and the structural violence. So these are the just, I've given a very short summary of what she actually talked about. For those who want to read a bit more of what she said, you could go to our paper again, either online. And for those who are interested, um, you can buy a sub. Uh, which is what ten dollars for seven issues. Give it a shot, and have a read. You can buy it as a e-sub, or you can also have the physical paper sent to you. And the snail snail post is a snail post these days. So if you can get an e-sub, it's probably quicker. You'll get it instantly on your um, computers. Now um, on international news, we did the um, Dakota pipeline. What's the other news? There's a long article on, on Mosul, the attack on Mosul, and Tony Iltis, who wrote the article in Greenleaf Weekly, has an absolutely thorough analysis on the complicated uh, situation there and the different communities that are involved. Um, and I'll read briefly what he's written, because it's way too long to, to read on radio. So he says, the Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi announces the start of an assault to recapture Mosul, the most important Iraqi city held by ISIS, this is October 16. The assault has spearheaded by, is spearheaded by the Iraqi army and the Peshmerga, the armed forces of the Kurdistan regional government in northern Iraq. It includes the popular mobilization called the PMU, Popular Mobilization Unit, the PMU, an umbrella group of militia groups loyal to the Iraqi government and based in Iraq's Shia Arab communities and some other Iraqi militias. Both Iraqi army and the Peshmerga received material support from Russia, Iran, and the U.S. and other Western powers, including Australia. Western, uh, Russia, and Russian and Russian and Iranian forces are all involved. Western, Russian, and Iranian forces are all involved in the assault on Mosul. The initial report suggests a steady advance towards ISIS-held cities. However, a fortnight later, a military spokesperson said the assault would take weeks or even months. Um, it, the UN humanitarian affairs said that 700,000 people could displace as a result of this, this battle. More than 3.3 million Iraqis have been displaced already uh, since 2004 during the invasion by ISIS. This adds to the 4 to 5 million Iraqis who have been internally displaced for forced or forced to, receive, to flee. Um, overseas since 2003, and these are the people who actually go out as refugees. So we have about 8 million, eight, eight, just over 8 million Iraqis who have been displaced one way or the other. And there are several reasons for the slow progress of the advance and also reasons why the dislodging of ISIS from Mosul will not bring peace. And he goes on to say that both Iraqi army and the PMU are predominantly drawn from the Shia Arab population and have reputations for religious and ethnic sectarianism. The Arab population of Mosul is predominantly Sunni, and the city has in also includes substantial non-Arab communities, Kurds, Assyrians, and Turkmen. Uh, 
The Iraqi and the foreign forces involved are divided by several intersections, inter- intersecting hostilities. The KRG is an anonymous entity within the Iraqi state as well. However, there is intense rivalry in and the central government in Baghdad and disagreements over whether Mosul should be part of the KRG's territory. So this is a very, very complex a long-term conflict basically started by the West in the early to th- uh, 1991, I think, from memory. Uh, I'm sure listeners can, can correct me if they want, but there has been a long and ongoing battle in this place. The Western media and its Russian and Iranian counterparts portray ISIS as some strange evil force that came out of nowhere, but it is the result of foreign interference in Iraq and Syria. So he concludes, he says that, the statement by Senegal Diaspora Assembly was uncompromising in its ins- insistence that the Yazidi, who are uh, one of the oldest religion in Iraqi's uh, minorities, was forced to flee the months um, Sinjar in Iraqi northwest region of faith slaughter by an encircling group of Islamic State jihadists. The UN has said that roughly 40,000 people, many women and children, um, and the PKK-affiliated forces had a role in the, in the liberation of Mosul, saying the Senegal resistance forces, YBS, YJS, will fight in the Mosul operation to save the women, children, and the girls taken captive by ISIS because the people of Senegal paid the heaviest and the biggest price, and they have right to join the offensive. We are ready for both peace and war, and we are also ready always to defend our lands. And that's what the Yazidi people are saying. It's the statement from the Sengal Diaspora Assembly that um, said that. The PKK is an organization that defends democracy, fraternity, equality, and the faith of all the ethnic groups and folks. We have experienced this in Sengal. Europe and other states should recognize the PKK and, and know that the PKK protects the Yazidis and other folks and faith groups. So that's an article worth reading because it's a very difficult um, situation to understand. And even my, my head, you know, goes on the bend when I'm reading it. You've got to read things several times to understand all these hmm. terrible stuff that's going on. Um, now, there was an article on um, the... I'm uh, do- um, sorry, Lali, you say an interview we got scheduled yeah, yeah. to... Yeah, yep. we will. Maybe we should go to that, yeah? So let me play an announcement and we'll get this environmentalist from Sri Lanka um, who gave a talk at the Darabin Climate um, Forum. Uh, let's see. Okay, we've got Kanchana um, Virakun on, on the line. Yeah, morning, Kanchana. Morning. Good morning. And welcome to 3CR. Thank you for agreeing for this interview. Now, for listeners, Kanchana is a, um, the president of the eco-friendly volunteers called EcoV. And she is also the co-founder of Journeys for Climate Justice, JCG, as they call it. And it is about making your carbon offset easily really count. So, Kanchana, tell us about the work you're doing um, in Sri Lanka. It sounded really interesting when I came to the forum. Yeah, um, actually I'm an environmentalist, or you can call uh, a conservationist, uh, but my academic background is I'm an ornithologist, so I'm a bird person. You're a bird person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're a uh, bat man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I 
founded ECOVI 15 years ago with a bunch of uh, my university friends. And now, uh, you know, for past 15 years, we have been doing a lot of programs for kids and youngsters and school children and even parents because uh, um, Sri Lanka is a beautiful country with high biodiversity, but still there is a lot we should do. Uh, so conservation of biodiversity and also uh, with the under um, rapid development after finishing the war in Sri Lanka. So people really are running towards the sometimes uh, materialistic development. So going away from their uh, original cultural values or uh, not saving their biodiversity. So we have to raise a lot of consciousness. Actually, uh, being uh, with a Buddhist background in the country, uh, it is quite easy to pass the message of conservation, which they have already forgotten, perhaps. Uh, but the village level, it is there. So there's a lot that we have to do within the country, uh, especially for the younger generation. And but that's a huge... Sorry, sorry, Kanchana, just interrupt you. But that's a huge challenge because um, Sri Lanka has actually a very small carbon print. And yeah. you're fighting against a global advance to what's called modern culture, uh, mm -hmm. disposable culture, uh, which is almost infectious around the world. That's a massive task you've got in front of you. It is. That is the challenge, Lalita, because people think that we have to develop like other countries. So they have already forgotten about our original values of sustainable development, which was there uh, since our ancient times. So it is, uh, we, we really don't talk about the carbon footprint there because there's nothing, as you said, to talk. Uh, but we have to fight against the car uh, climate change. Hmm. So therefore, we have to uh, stop uh, emission um, kind of, you know, like uh, not, uh, not according to the other countries. But if we also emit, the rest of the world will be in, uh, in danger, right? That's so right. unless we, we bring that consciousness that we don't have to emit uh, that kind of consciousness, but still we can get developed with uh, saving our biodiversity and saving our cultural values. So that is the challenge, passing that uh, information uh, about um, just living, you know, uh, and uh, not the just living, but the ultimate happiness uh, with minimum damage to this world. And you have focused on the youth, I believe. That's uh, another inspiring thing you've been doing in Sri Lanka. Not only in Sri Lanka, you have also done that in Vietnam and other countries. Tell us briefly what how you did that? Yeah, actually, um, uh, the JCJ, Journeys for Climate Justice, based in Melbourne, which is my other organization, which I co-founded with Jim Crossway here in Melbourne. We met accidentally, actually, in Melbourne while I was living here in 2010. So that organization, we focus on uh, uh, offsetting carbon uh, in a meaningful way because we can uh, easily offset carbon to plant trees. But our ambition is planting green leaders, which are youth, which means that we are training green leaders to be more conscious about green activities. So if we offset on them, they will plant millions of trees and they will do a lot of uh, activities, green activities, to minimize their own carbon footprint. So that's our mission. That's our message to the world. So we have done a lot of programs in uh, Sri Lanka, obviously with my involvement since I'm living there. Um, and Vietnam, Bangladesh, we targeted youth there. So we have a bunch of youth who are doing and spreading the message of green leadership. 
Um, yes, so with the JCJ support, actually I have to say that JCJ support means it's Australian people's support because they are the people who offset their travel carbon uh, into JCJ. So we use that those dollars in our Asian countries to combat climate change and to fight with climate change because we are Asia is the most suffering nation uh, because of these climate change repercussions. Mm. And um, how did you convince the, the young people um, to get involved? Because that's one of the hardest tasks here, because young people all over the world are into new new technology, which is um, one industry that leaves a huge car- carbon print. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's, that's challenges. But um, having come, uh, said that, the Asian youngsters are still, you know, uh, they are with their, bounded with their cultural values still. But yes, they are targeted uh, for the rapid development, so they are go for, going for technology-based lifestyle. Uh, but what we are trying to do is like bringing them back to the connections with Mother Nature. So we are, I am um, particularly using in Sri Lanka, like uh, tell them uh, more convincingly about our connections to the trees, to the birds. So we take them early walk uh, for bird watching, and so we we use a lot of meditation and relaxation methods. Uh, to and also we use five sensory organs to smell the environment, to touch, to feel, and, you know, to taste. So through home gardening, um, so a lot of various activities which are so beautiful. Um, we talk to the trees, we talk to the animals, uh, and we touch the earthworm. So those kind of little bit um, mixed with emotions and also the quality of life, uh, we tell that. And especially we tell that to the parents also. So they are convinced. They love their children getting back to the nature, but in the same time, we tell them, if you do this, whatever the profession that you end up, you will have a lot of opportunities because you understand the ultimate values of this mother nature. So therefore, engineer, if then that, that becomes a qualification for them to compete for a job opportunity. So they talk about those uh, projects, those experience when they go for job interviews or when they apply for jobs. So I think that is very advantage. It's a great advantage for our youngsters uh, doing these activities voluntary before. Mm. Last question. Um, I guess it goes into the economy and politics because the Sri Lankan economy is going to be affected by your program because they are into economic development and that involves, again, the new technology pathway. Um, any political impact in the, in the way you are conducting your campaign? Uh, actually, I have to say that uh, we are getting a lot of support from the government and not uh, not everywhere. But most of the time when we go and tell about our yatras, which is which are journeys. So if we want to travel along a river, we definitely need the permission from uh, military forces, police, and then the government department. So when we go and we tell them, they are really uh, supportive. Uh, so the, obviously, Sri Lanka police is supporting us because we have an, an 
environmental section under the Sri Lanka police. So they support it. And I think they can see the impact from our programs because some of our youth end up in the government. So there are good case studies, archaeology department and other environmental divisions. So they try to make the change once they get the job within their divisions and within the uh, government uh, departments that they are working with. So I think uh, government is supportive and of course Generally, Sri Lanka, they support any good programs uh, emerging, so we can. And also we are representing the forums, different forums with government, climate change forums. So therefore, there is a res uh, um, recognition for ECOVI and our work with JCJ here uh, called Yatra. Mm, it's good to get some good news out of Sri Lanka because we usually hear negative stuff. Okay, thank you so much, Ganshna, for being available so early in the morning. It's um, nice to have a bit of positive news. And have you, Thank you so uh, much. Have a good day. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye, Kanchana. Okay. We have probably five minutes for some announcements. A quick announcements. I want to start off with this really important one. Uh, we have a trivia night organized for Green Left Weekly Radio, and this is part of fundraising for the 3CR program that we are in at the moment. It is on a Saturday on the 19th of November, which is about two weeks away, Metro West Victorian University. It's at 138 Nicholson Street, Footscray. It starts at 6 p.m. And the tri uh, there's food, drinks, um, and the actual trivia starts at 7 p.m. But the proceeds will go to 3CR and the Green Left um, and Green Left, uh, food and drinks available, as I said. So trivia night, 19th of November. It's a Saturday. Come and have some fun um, and good food, and there'll be drinks, and it'll be in the West, Metro West Victoria University, 138 Nicholson Street. Yeah. Um, I, I'm Lali, I need the announcements. Well, uh, yeah. You had them printed there. Yes, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry for that, listeners. Um, but the piece of paper just wasn't in front of me. All right, so many of probably already know there is going to be, uh, it was announced before, but I'll announce it again, a refugee rights rally happening at 1 p.m. at the State Library. It's time, bring them here, close the camps, permanent protection now. Um, but also, actually, if you also have time after the rally, there will actually will be another rally um, happening right after it. Um, it's World Kobani Day, solidarity with the Rojava Revolution. Um, Kobani is the Kurdish city um, city in northern Syria whose epic resistance defeated an Islamic State siege in 2014-2015. Kobani is a symbol for the Rojava Revolution which is trying to build a secular multi-ethnic society in which women are empowered and the people rule through grassroots assemblies and communities. Um, so the people of Rojava need our support. Um, it's going to be happening at 3pm after the refugee rally at the State Library. Um, on Sunday, um, I think you'll have search this in Google. Um, it's Running for Palestine, um, happening at 10 a.m., and I think you have to register. So just um, write Run for Palestine in Google search, and you should be able to find it. Um, on f next Thursday, there will be, um, especially in light of what's happening on Bendigo Street, those, um, there will be a rally to defend and extend public housing. Um, that will be um, that is organised by Friends of Public Housing, and it's happening at 11:30 at uh, next Thursday at the Parliament Steps, corner of Spring and Burke Street. Um, on that Thursday, there'll be um, from Mao to Now on constructing an online course on China. Um, basically, it's going to be uh, um, academic talking about. Um, 
about his the process of creating a massive online open course on Chinese Marxism. Um, so that will be at 7pm at the New International Bookshop, corner of um, Ligon and Victoria Street. Um, and I guess, how, many, how much time do we have? Do we have, or we have three minutes? Another couple of minutes. A couple of minutes. So I guess another few null announcements. They'll be on the following Saturday. There'll be a rally against um, the privatisation of public disability services. Um, that is organised by the HACS, um, HACSU. Um, that is going to be happening um, at the uh, at a pro. Um, there will be a protest at the ALP State Conference, which is at 10.30am at the Mooney Valley Racing Club. Um, there will be a film screening of um, Ken Loach's I, Daniel Blake, um, part of the British Film Festival at November 12th, the Saturday. Um, however, you can make your bookings um, if you search um, for British Film Festival. However, just um, so you note, that film will actually be coming out um, on... The 18th, the 17th of November, as far as I know, at the Cinema Nova. Um, I'll definitely recommend um, you check it out. It is the latest film by Ken Loach, and it, it's it's very radical, very political. Um, it's been getting very positive reviews. Um, in fact, it's been getting kind of attacked by kind of like the Murdoch press and um, the British media for saying that a story about someone living on benefits and his struggles is too unrealistic, um, which... Um, but um, on that same Saturday, November the 12th, um, Naomi Klein will be speaking um, at 7.30pm um, at the, how do you pronounce this, the Anthem... Anthonym Theatre. Yep, at, um, which is at 188 Collins Street. Anthonym. Um, you have to, you'll have to make bookings for this event, so just search Naomi Klein in Melbourne in Google search and you should be able to find it. She yeah. be hard. It'd be a very popular event, I'd say. Yep. Okay, you got another 55 minutes. Now I'm going to start the... 55 seconds, you mean. 50, sorry, 55 seconds. Right. <laughs> um, I guess the last announcement is um, there will be there'll be a public um, meeting. Um, what's that sound, activism today? Um, that will be joined by um, four local activists, Elaine P- Pearson, Gary Foley, Amelia Telford and Tess Lolly discuss the prospect of political change in the 21st century. That's at the Wheeler Centre at 176 Little Longsdale Street in the city. Um, it's a free event, but bookings are essential. Um, that's actually the first time I've heard about this event. So I might Second. Okay, that'll be the end of the announcement because we have the half... Well, this one's half an hour, not all, all of them are. It's a 40-year celebration, and the... Um, program for the next half hour is from 1986. It's about women. It's actually a program produced by the Women Online about the ceilings for women. So, goodbye from Jacob and uh, myself, Lalita. Thank you for listening. And remember, you know, we are still f- um, canvassing for funds to support uh, 3CR. And if you have enjoyed this program, please um, donate. Um, as much as you can and you, you obviously uh, may have heard this many times but anything over $2 is tax deductible and thank you for listening and here we go, this is Women on the Line 1986 Today's Women on the Line presents On the Record, 20 Years of Women's Radio an eight-part series chronicling key feminist issues covered on the program since 1986. My name's Monique Sofa, and on today's show, 
Dismantling the Glass Ceiling, Women in the Workforce. Today we'll reflect on some of the changes Australian women have faced in the workplace, with a particular focus on the careers they've chosen and the discrimination they've faced on the job. We'll consider a broad spectrum of women workers, from lawyers to locksmiths, typists to teachers. Every woman that opts for a career in science with sufficient awareness to perhaps be able to reject some stereotyping that may occur to decide if I wish to be a physicist this does not mean I have to be less than a woman. I do not have to become a pseudo man. Um, every time that happens we've made progress. Women have a right to choose whatever work they want to do and if that work happens to be work in a non-traditional occupation they have just as much right to be there as if they chose to work in a typical female profession such as nursing. A lot of older women especially, they were looked down on by the bosses when computers came in. If you look at the industrial revolution, you know, the skills of the weavers being taken over by a factory machine, well, typing was pretty much like that. We were doing a big extension, working on the back of his house, putting up the weatherboards on the outside. A plumber had been there the day before, and the next morning he turned up and so did two of his friends, and they just sat around. And so finally we said, what are you doing here? And they said, oh, oh we just came to watch Lady Builders. Well, we thought afterwards we should have got an act together where I'd say, oh, hand me up that hammer, will you? And she'd hand me the saw and I'd start hitting at the wall with it or something like that. Currently, the Australian workforce is highly gender segregated, with 72% of women workers concentrated in the retail trade, health and community, education and property and business services. You wouldn't imagine that one of these more traditional career choices for women, the teaching profession that is, would throw women too many career curveballs. But Abby Thompson from Wodonga on the New South Wales Victorian border faced discrimination in 1987 that today almost speaks belief. Abby was dismissed from the Catholic school where she worked as a teacher because she became pregnant out of wedlock. The school claimed her lifestyle would bring the students into moral danger and fired her despite an initial Industrial Relations Commission ruling. After my uh, initial application for maternity leave, they made it quite clear that my de facto relationship and my pregnancy is unsuitable um, and he could not ensure me further employment in the Catholic system unless I was to produce a marriage certificate. I had been working at the school for four years and the whole situation had never been brought to my attention until I applied for maternity leave. So obviously my lifestyle had no impact until I had a baby. Well, I'd never discussed the fact whether I was married or not before. They have since brought it to my attention that my personnel file stated I was single. Well, I am single. You only get the choice of asking whether you're single or married in the commission. They did reject moral objections, preferring to look at the strict employment relationship, and they kept on asking the school whether they um, ensured me return to work. And so the, the school did say, in the end, that I could return to work unconditionally. Well, they feel as though that they met those obligations by letting me return to work and then... <laughs> an hour later um, asking me whether my situation had changed. On, on finding out that my situation had changed and I, I really didn't see fit to change it, they decided they would put all these moral objections towards me to sort of put the process of uh, dismissal in. Abby Thompson in 1987. Although discrimination on this scale might not be so common nowadays, in 2001, 
the number of complaints of pregnancy discrimination under the Sex Discrimination Act increased by 150% on the previous year. The office, another traditional area where women have worked, has also been an area where women have faced struggles, most notably in their search for appropriate training. When computers and word processors were dumped on women's desks in the 1980s, women were expected to just shut up and type. Rosemary Harris explains. And I found this absolutely chaotic scene in the, in the offices and uh, typing staff now, word processing staff, were just tearing their hair out. The bosses were far more ignorant of what was needed than what the typists were, of course, because they've never understood typing. They sort of think it's this skillless thing of just rote typing, copy typing. They think everybody's a copy typist and there's no intelligence required. And uh, they, they didn't know how to work the computers, so they didn't know keyboarding, they didn't know computers, and they just didn't provide any training. It was a bit like, you know, women can become mothers automatically because that's what they're born for. Well, a typist could automatically adapt to a computer because... She's a typist, isn't she? And it's only a keyboard. <laughs> you know, women were very much divided against women, etc., because the place I was in was quite hierarchical too. You know, had from typists to senior secretaries. And of course, the truth is that if a woman uses technology, they don't think it's technology. If, if you sort of look at all the tomes that have been written about technology over the ages, it's men's work, not women's. Like if a woman uses needlework or sewing or housework sort of technology. Oh, it's not really technology. This nice thing happening that they tried to put over on us. That, oh, well, new jobs are being created by the computers and it's just a little change, <laughs> which is not true at all. I mean, the jobs were just disappearing. What was devastating to a lot of older women especially was that their skills, which they had built up over many years, and that was page layout, but especially speed and accuracy, and especially the accuracy, and um, they were very proud of their skills. It's like if you look at the Industrial Revolution, you know, the skills of the weavers or something rather being taken over by a factory machine. Well, well, typing was pretty much like that. So I found that a lot of older women especially, they were looked down on by the bosses when computers came in. The computers would sort of be placed on the desks of younger, probably better looking females. <laughs> The, the older woman would be disregarded and suddenly feel useless, looked down on, uh, shoved out of their your normal work. Some of them were shoved over into you know, very unskilled clerical work and they were devastated by it. They really were. I mean, there were kind of two situations. One was that this computer was dumped on your desk and you were given no instructions and not even a manual even in some cases and just thought, oh, we'll see how you go and you had to sort of stumble through and tear your hair out and go home thinking, God, what's gone wrong and how can I fix it and everything. And the reverse of that situation was that you were taken off your typing work altogether and put into, put into something that, that to you was meaningless. It should have liberated women, but it was chaining a lot of women to a, a machine. When computers became available, they could have consulted the women as to how, how can you use this super-duper tool to help you in your work. It's a question of workers having control over their work and that was, again, what was very traumatic to a lot of the women then, that had no control, they had less control than ever. Unlike office work, the legal profession in the 1980s didn't have a particularly female-friendly workforce culture. 
Ariel Couchman, a solicitor from Melbourne, stood up against the rather outdated notion that women barristers must wear a dress to court by turning up to her admission ceremony in trousers. But her problems started a few weeks beforehand when she registered to attend the Supreme Court as a moose. Well, um, uh, Mr Collins, the Secretary of the Board of Examiners, said that he had to strictly adhere to the rules, and the rules, as stated in the admission sort of, you know, documents and so forth, um, only had a missus or a miss or a mister, and uh, so I had to be one of those. I, I said that I'd prefer to be nothing at all, I'd prefer to have no title or be miss, and so he got quite upset about that. And uh, I'd previously contacted the Equal Opportunities Board because I'd been told by other women that they'd had some, a bit of trouble in being a Ms. Um, and so I'd been informed that it would be um, the basis, it could be the basis of a complaint to the Equal Opportunities Board on the basis of uh, uh, marital status discrimination. And so I, I let him know that that was a possibility if he didn't let me be a Ms. And uh, then he proceeded to tell me that I had um, little respect for the Supreme Court and, and ho-ho, was I going to take the Supreme Court judges and take them all down to the board? And, you know, how ridiculous. And I think what amazed me then was to realise that he thought that the the courts were far above any of the sort of laws of government and that government is somehow something a bit sort of trivial compared to the courts. I was basically advised by the Equal Opportunities Board that I could um, catch them out in, in as much as they were um, actually functioning as an admissions board and any admission board um, comes under Section 26 of the Act and so they've got to abide by all that's, all that's within the Act. But when it comes to like judges saying um, wear trousers in court or um, you know I'm going to call you miss whatever you think, it really, the Equal Opportunities Board doesn't have any jurisdiction over that. It's, it's a bit strange to try and work it out, but I think that the way they, they argue it is that um, the courts aren't under the jurisdiction of the, of, the, uh, of the Equal Opportunities Act and not under any sort of government sort of direction. And, in fact, they, the judges uh, in their own courts can ask for any sort of conduct or any sort of behaviour to occur. I mean, I assist women in court cases and I find that most women who walk into those cases, they are just amazed at the sort of, um, just the feeling within the court of, of such a male dominance, just all these men in dark um, suits and um, the odd woman in her pretty little dress or skirt, um, demure dress, not anything too outlandish or anything. And I think it is... Um, it is very much a male sphere and that's sort of reflected in a lot of the sort of jokes that the judge makes. Like I think people often see judges as being very serious and maintaining you know, st uh, strict sort of comments pertaining to the law. But it's, if you sit in a court for a number of days, you hear all sorts of little asides and lots of them are sort of sexual innuendos about women and, um, and there is quite a bit of comment about a barrister if she's particularly conventionally attractive or, and there's comments amongst um, barristers about ugly barristers or ugly solicitors and I think it is really offensive to women to be in that sort of situation. I've never really believed in um, law reform being the way to change things. I mean I think the small sort of gestures can be made like yesterday where a lot of women came up and, and congratulated me and they were, a lot of them were women within the legal system who they wouldn't dare to do something like that but they were really glad that I'd done it because they'd always felt that they'd been put down. I mean, 
you know, feminine wiles can get you so far, but most of them I think have learnt because they're pretty serious about what they're doing that um, it only means that ultimately they're not taken seriously. Since Ariel's actions in 1986, attitudes in Australia's courtrooms have relaxed to some degree. For almost 20 years now, women have been graduating from law schools around Australia in equal and in some cases more numbers than men. Women, however, still continue to be underrepresented in the Australian courts, particularly in the higher judiciary. Now to another important area of the workforce, where the absence of women in its ranks is sorely obvious. Women were admitted on restricted duties to the New South Wales Police Force in 1915, 1917 in Victoria. By 1981, less than 10% of the Victorian workforce consisted of women. In the mid-1990s, Victoria's police force sought to rectify this gender imbalance. Pauline Spencer from the Federation of Community Legal Centres explains. In a modern police force, communication, negotiation, having empathy with victims and with um, other people who come in contact with the police force, it's really important and uh, it's something that I think is undersold where you have a, a police force that's still based in a, in a macho culture. I think it's very prevalent in the way that policing is done around family violence, around sexual assault cases particularly, uh, where women in the community prefer to talk to women, but there just aren't women officers there for them to talk to. And uh, particularly in rural areas where um, the, the choice is, is much more limited. It's been shown that women police officers do have a greater focus on these sorts of skills, and I suppose it's not so much um, nurturing that, that is the focus. It's really about communication and about negotiation, and that because women uh, can't rely on strength to get things done, a lot of the times they, are, they have better developed communication skills. And also, it's around, I think, breaking down the culture of the brotherhood, which does other things within the police force. Slow progress continues and in 2003 Australia's only female police commissioner, Christine Nixon, applied for the Victorian police force to be given an exemption from sex discrimination legislation to ensure that half of all new recruits in the state are female. Today in Victoria around 20% of the police officers are women and there is a 30% representation of women in the ACT police force. As more and more women enter the scientific field, they are challenging the notion that science's objective pursuit is beyond, is beyond public question or scrutiny. The University of Adelaide's Sandy Taylor in 1987. We need to involve more women in science, but that in itself will not change science. Um, if we then force those young women to adopt certain stereotypic behaviour patterns, which again are stereotypically masculine in order to be successful scientists we won't have changed anything by increasing the numerical proportion of women in science. Feminists who are interested in um, methodology of science are attempting to suggest different ways of approaching science. Frequently science is being criticized by feminists who are not themselves scientists. Um, some, some women scientists are uh, criticizing science and they speak with the, the major authority but it, it is an endeavour which involves women historians as well, and women sociologists looking at the role of science in, in society. Most of the critiques of science so far have centred on um, the role of science uh, which has a direct impact on women, biology, medicine, um, that, those kinds of critiques of those. Uh, women are just recently beginning to get into critiques of what they often call hard sciences, physics, chemistry. And a lot of that has come through the nuclear disarmament movement. Um, 
critiques of the role of physics and chemistry in the, in the military machine, but the models, the way physicists and chemists view the world, uh, the way hard science views the world or views reality is coming under critique. But that, that's a difficult thing because there aren't that many women in the hard sciences. Even when we, we do get more proportional representation of women, they tend to be uh, in biology, as witnessed myself. Um, and in social sciences and etc. So the, the women physicists who can criticize from inside uh, are few and far between, but there are some. Um, it is happening. Several years later, in 1995, librarian and school teacher Sue Basinski spoke about the push to get girls involved in science. Well, they are actually encouraging girls quite a bit in maths and science at schools at the moment. Uh, certainly a lot of the girls' schools are concentrating on science and math programs but even in the co-ed schools it's been so successful not just here but in, over in England I read an article not long ago that said that the girls had actually overtaken the boys and were doing so much better than the boys that now they had to concentrate on helping the boys a few years ago a little girl came down to the library to photocopy the chapter about Sally Ride and she said oh miss I never knew women could be astronauts how wonderful Around Australia through the Community Radio Network, you're listening to a special Women on the Line presentation. On the record, 20 years of women's radio, an eight-part series chronicling key feminist issues covered on the program since 1986. In the early 1980s, the then unprivatised SEC, or State Electricity Commission in Victoria, recognised the significantly low numbers of female engineers within its workforce and implemented programs to address the gender imbalance. Dr Susan Dillon in 1987. Well, firstly, we looked at the number of female engineers we had in the place, no, about 2%, which was lower than the numbers being churned out by the engineering school. So first, the first question is, well, that's not very good. But even worse, if we want to increase the numbers in technical areas in the future, how are we going to increase our recruitment pool if everyone else is going to be scrabbling for these same people further down the track? So I decided we had to do something more than just put on, you know, we are an equal opportunity employer onto our advertisement, um, which is all very fine but doesn't take you very far. So we set up a scheme in conjunction with the relevant training department. One of the other objects of the whole thing was to get the organisation used to having women around in technical positions so they wouldn't be a minority and it wouldn't be a big deal when they came in. We had a few but, you know, they were called lady engineers and that sort of thing. I sort of wanted to get, get it to the point where no one talks like that. We were really trying to change the culture internally. Unfortunately, women engineers today still represent less than 10% of the engineering workforce nationwide. As a result, the Council of Engineers Australia has declared 2007 the Year of Women in Engineering. Perhaps these 1980s programs may have had more success if they'd focused on the practical concerns of women in engineering. Erin Wood, the National Women's Coordinator of APESMA, the Association of Professional Engineers, Scientists and Managers Australia, suggested in 2006 that women engineers were primarily concerned with work-life balance. APESMA does surveys of professional women's working lives and asks 
women to identify what they see as being the obstacles to their career and what they want us to do to actually make careers and their working lives better places. And the main thing that they see as the main obstacle to their working lives is workplace culture. And the main thing they want to do, us to do is to provide flexible work lives. Uh, now, many of the professionals that APESMA represents are, uh, uh, for us, male-dominated industries. So it's no surprise that these sorts of issues uh, are raised uh, when you have traditional work cultures, traditional work structures and traditional forms of work. Uh, when you have a look at uh, the work experience of professionals across all of the different sectors, you'll find, for instance, that women in engineering are operating in a field where only about 3% of professionals actually work part-time. Let me uh, contrast that to areas such as, uh, such as medicine um, and uh, uh, other areas where people perhaps have the pharmacy, where people have the capacity to actually have more of a choice around the type of hours that they work. Another area of the workforce where women have faced struggles over the years has been the trades. Mary Yates, an apprentice carpenter from South Australia in 1987. Definitely I've had bias and uh, in my workplace. There have been some people who have been atrocious to me who have verbally said you're taking the place of a male a 16-year-old, that's outrightly saying that. And um, the, the very, very common criticism that you won't stay in the trade. And my reply to that, of course, always is how many STA bus drivers <laughs> are tra ex-tradesmen or ex-trades people? Most of them, in fact, are tradespeople. So men also leave the trade. And um, the majority of them believe that you're just doing it as a novelty. In 1998, the Victorian Women's Trust compiled a directory of women in trades and services which aimed to increase the accessibility and business profiles of Victorian women in trades and services as well as acting as a career guidance tool for young women. Julie, a locksmith listed in the directory in 1999. Women just shouldn't be doing this type of work. It's men's work, you know. You should be at home or, you know, like a girl's job, you know. It's an alright. And from that day on it's been so difficult to prove myself to him and, um, you know, He'll never compliment me, he'll never acknowledge that I've done a good job, but I do hear feedback every now and then. You know, now I'm qualified, now I've proved myself and, you know, um, done all the good things to get in the good books. Now you get a little bit of feedback saying, yeah, Joy did that, she did not a bad job, did she? You know, like, but he'll never say it to your face, he'll always say it to someone else and he'll get back to you. And you think, well, you know, why can't you say that to me? I said, I've done everything I can to, to prove to you what a good job, you know, that I, I'm capable of doing it or we're capable of doing it. And he's just a knocker all the time. You know, always wants to knock you back, you know. Like, and, like, it was really... I was disgusted that, he, you know, he thinks women shouldn't be doing this, you know. And now I hope that I prove myself. He, he has a different thought about women in the trade. So, but, God, it's just such a um, traumatic thing. And now I can understand why so many women drop out of the trade because they've got these typical blokes who are forever giving them a hard time about things, you know. I'd say probably 1% of the people that I go to are shocked when, the, when, I op when they open the door and they see that I'm a woman and they go, oh, you can't do the job um, because of my physical strength or for whatever reasons. Um, but... Yeah, once I get in there and do the job, they're wrapped, really. <laughs> I'm just sanding this um, 
railing here to a dull finish so that the next coat of paint will adhere. You need to get rid of the gloss. When I was um, a teenager, 20 odd years ago, um, it was you were just seen as a freak and given a very hard time. Nowadays we have legislation, affirmative action, we have legislation against um, sexism in the workplace, so it is easier from that point of view, but there is still attitudes that have been retained and it's not really a friendly place, a building site oftentimes for young girls and they don't have the skills to deal with the situation and many do drop out of their apprenticeships. Yeah, look, I get lots of comments from the blokes that, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this kind of work because you're not built to do the kind of work. Um, it's, it's not proper for you to be doing the work. But look, locksmithing is, is not a, a heavy job. Like, it's, it's a, um, you have to be very good mechanically-wise. Um, you have to be good with, uh, you know, um, using tools, etc. And it's really not a, a job that, you know, women can't do. I mean, look, anyone can really do it. And um, it's not a, you know, I mean, if you're looking at carpentry, for example, I mean, there's a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of building, all that kind of stuff, so you'd have to be fairly fit, etc. But it's not impossible for a woman to do it. Um, and locksmithing isn't quite as heavy or a demanding job. So... You know, for those people who um, who say that kind of stuff, I, I just, yeah, I mean, look, living proof. That's what I say to my boss all the time when he puts me down. Oh, I'm living proof that I've done it, you know, so. We have imposed, uh, through our economy, uh, we have imposed a whole lot of economic structures that say, if you're a man, you do this. If you're a woman, you do this. Uh, and it's not, it's not humanly realistic to keep imposing that kind of labour market segmentation. There will always be men and women whose talents uh, would, would have them move more widely across occupations, but, but our labour market uh, tends to be seg segmented along gender lines much more than a lot of men, men and women would like. So it's, I suppose what I'm saying is that just because there are trades that women don't go into doesn't mean to say that there aren't women who can perform those trades. It really is a way in which certain cultural attachments about what men and women do becomes then built into the labour market. Mary Crooks, the director of the Victorian Women's Trust in 1999, talking about women's non-traditional work and the directory of women trades and services, which is now online in its third edition. And that's all we've got time for. You've been listening to a special series on the record, 20 Years of Women's Radio, which follows key feminist issues from the Women on the Line radio archives. There are eight parts to the series, and if you've missed any of them, you can download them from our website, www.womenontheline.org.au, or order a copy from 3CR on 03 9419 8377. Thanks to the Victorian Women's Trust for funding this historic project, and to all the past contributors to the program for making this project possible. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network Service of the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I'm Monique Sofa. Thanks for joining me.